0: 1999 the podcast is a production of the cage club podcast network for more podcasts on movies comics and all things pop culture head to cageclub.me to contact us with questions comments or just to say hi send us an email at 1999 at cageclub.me you can find me on twitter at probably real JB and joey at soulpot and you can follow the show on twitter at 1999 the podcast to support the show please subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts The show was written, produced, and edited by us. Welcome to 1999, the podcast. I'm John Brooks. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And it is Memorial Day, uh, which means that it's the summer movie season starting today. Or or like, I guess it used
1: to mean that. Does it still mean that? It does, but it started on Thursday night when I saw Top Gun Maverick, the film of the summer.
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah, I think it's pretty interesting
0: that of the three big summer blockbusters that are coming out for the beginning of summer movie season, like two of them are TV shows. What are you talking about? Like well, Bob's Burgers? Well, no, I was thinking like Top Gun and then Stranger Things four and then Obi wan Kenobi. I just feel oh, like the three mean, like
1: oh, you mean that just like what the 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 entertainment that's kicking off? Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like actual TV shows, right? Not well, you Bob's know, burgers. I I don't know if this this doesn't make sense here, but we're talking about it. But the reason there's so much TV happening in May is because May 31st is the Emmy's deadline. So everything that they've used by May 31st is eligible. and oh, that's interesting.
0: that's okay, interesting. why
1: this last month has been crazy for new shows. You would think they would have the deadline like at the end of the year. I don't know, they're... man. Nothing makes sense about anything. It also might have been impacted by COVID. I don't know. But yes, I guess the unofficial kickoff this summer. Well, I think Stranger Things has affixed itself to the 4th of July weekend, and the actual right. final episodes are airing then, so I don't right. know. Who knows? True. But yeah, Bob's Burgers true. crossing the Rubicon, maybe. But there's definitely something about like Stranger Things that it's very like
0: summer blockbuster vibe, and, and having the fourth season debut at the time of summer movie season starting just I don't think that's a coincidence but you're right they they do the July 4th thing now and um, this
1: is a lot of ramp up for a movie that is set at Christmas and that could not feel less like a summer blockbuster even though it came out in summer <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's a real <laughs> feel good summer did romp. they build this as the feel bad movie of the summer because they should have uh,
0: yeah but it wasn't even I don't think it was even the feel bad maybe it was it might have been the most depressing movie of the summer but either way we are at July 16th. This is two days after the limited release of our last movie, The Blair Witch Project. This is the day that birthed a thousand QAnon conspiracies because it is the day that John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn uh died in a plane crash. Allegedly. Today's movie stars Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Sidney Pollack, Todd Field with Thomas Gibson, Rada Sherbeja, Lily Sobieski, and the rising star of kate blanchett or at
1: least her voice i forgot that this is a tom cruise weekend
0: big tom cruise weekend
1: both in 99 and now yeah i mean it's not really 1999 now but 1999 celebrated now and in real life now wow wow someone should do a a podcast about that man (laughs) the final
0: film written and directed by the legendary stanley kubrick is of course eyes wide shut um joey can you uh can you give us a plot rundown what is eyes wide shut
1: about what isn't it about? I mean, it's about marital discourse and dis and strife and mm. tumultuous relationships and fear of toxic masculinity and all sorts. Of, I mean, it's it's a three-hour movie or two hours and forty-five minutes or whatever. Like, there's a lot it's covering, but really about a, a crumbling marriage and infidelity and toxic masculinity and all that fun stuff. Everything you go see a movie in the summer for. And which character is Tom Cruise in that? (laughs) He plays Dr. Bill, the toxic (laughs) masculinist.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis. Um, It's less of a movie that is plot driven than it is theme driven. right? And I think that's pretty true of a lot of Kubrick's work. Anyway, while our last film, The Blair Witch Project, was notable for having one of the shortest film shoots in history at just eight days, Eyes Wide Shut holds the record as the longest continuous film shoot at 400 days. Seems cool. That's a lot. Kubrick was a notorious perfectionist and the editing of the film alone took another year. (laughs) So to say that it's true that eyes wide shut fits in a lot of ways into the sort of 1999 aesthetic of the films that push boundaries and have all this like angst, right. That sort of underlies them. Uh, The film itself is really a product of the last sort of half decade of the 1990s um, since it began production actually in 1990. Ninety six, so it really is a movie that spans a pretty long time, and just sort of happened to hit, I think, in the right year. Right, I mean, that's sort of why we're including it in um, our list of kind of the essential nineteen ninety nine movies.
1: And well, I think we'll, I think we'll talk about this probably with our guests. But I feel like it's the kind of movie that could kind of come out whenever and still would feel like it's of that year, of that time, of the themes that people are talking about and thinking about at that moment in time.
0: I agree that it's a movie whose themes could be applied to any time uh i think the, the the version of the movie that we got is very specific to that time um but you know after 9 11 i think a lot of a lot of the way that people approach some of these issues begins to change but um yeah it's it's as we know based on a work that is much earlier than the 1990s um so anyway of course Cruz and Kidman, the stars of this movie, were at the time Hollywood's most famous couple, and had already starred together in Days of Thunder in 1990 and Far and Away in 1992. And some suggest the famously demanding Kubrick pushed their marriage to the breaking point. Uh, the contracts for the film were open-ended, essentially handing over their lives to Kubrick for as long as he wanted them. And Kubrick also subjected both Cruz and Kidman to draconian rules about when they could and could not interact on and off set. Kubrick himself may have worked himself to death with the film. He died on March 7th, 1999, just days after submitting his final cut. Though his co-writer, Frederick Raphael, also claims that Sidney Pollock, himself an accomplished filmmaker, is actually responsible for the cut that would ultimately hit theaters. Either way, the film is well-received, if not overwhelmingly praised by critics and audiences. It has a 75% critics rating and a 74% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and a respectable score of 68 on Metacritic. Um, it's worth noting, however, that the critical division is unusually stark, with critics who reviewed it positively giving the film overwhelming praise and vice versa, and very little in between. The word masterpiece gets tossed around a lot in a lot of those positive reviews, including in the one from AV Club's Nathan Rabin, and among those who heaped nothing but praise on the film or USA Today's Mike Clark, who called it, quote, a precisely modulated and mostly mesmerizing suspense movie, in part because it's one of the most bravely disturbing screen works ever attempted about thoughts withheld by even the most devoted marriage partners and the ramifications of voicing them. But among the most notable detractors were the Village Voices' Jay Hoberman, who said it feels like a rough draft at best, (laughs) the New York Post's Jonathan Foreman, who called it Stanley Kubrick's Hindenburg, and once again, Slate's David Edelstein, who we talked about in the Phantom Menace episode, who called it, quote, a somnolent load of wank. Pretty harsh words. It's not. No, not great. Because
1: <laughs> I think because now when people look back at it now, like it's almost widely considered a masterpiece. And like, yes, I think a lot of people would even argue it's maybe his best movie.
0: Yes. Um, and that is that is the case. All those critics are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, And I think one of the things that we tend to find just sort of like, I don't know, anecdotally or just sort of what I notice is that a lot of the movies that have really polar reviews where let's say like three quarters of them are positive and a quarter of them are negative and the negative ones are also very pronounced. They're not wishy-washy. They're like, this is bad. Um, Are the ones that tend to when they get revisited go all one way or the other which is to say that like right that the minority proves right (laughs) or the minority gets swayed over onto the correct side of the dial which in this case is the side that views this movie as something of a masterpiece (laughs) and one of the best movies of the 90s and certainly of 1999. And that is the case, like a lot of those critics have since gone back and and given it a second look and been like, okay, I didn't get it then and I get it now. Um, And again, I, I think that is a very, that's kind of very typical of a lot of Kubrick's work. People don't tend to dislike it more over time.
1: Well, I think that both with Hayes' movie, like with most good art, like being able to revisit it is going to only help it. And I think it also points to like the flaw in or a flaw in film criticism and just like all criticism. It's like, you know, you don't know what you're when you're catching these critics. If they're having a bad night, they have to watch mm-hmm. it on a Tuesday night for like publication mm-hmm. on Wednesday morning and they only get to watch it once and they might not be able to have they take like great notes and just like, they might not remember. And like, if they're in a bad mood or it's just like, they're whatever, they're just stressed or anything. It's like, no, this is like New York times calls it or whatever, calls it a bad movie because like, you know, he was having a, you know, he and his girlfriend got into a fight that night. She's like, well, you know, so.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, certainly I, I think anybody who's seen eyes wide shut can say that it's one of those movies that you have to be in the mood for. And I think that also applies to when critics see, a movie right in a screening that like they have to be in the mood for it to really get it i think there's a lot of movies like you can just you kind of know what you're getting when you go into it so you can kind of mentally prepare yourself right if it's like a horror movie or something like that right you kind of you kind of you can do the 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 advance work of setting yourself up for what you're about to see um with kubrick you kind of know you're going to be like you know taken on a journey right so uh i can definitely understand that a critic in the sort of wrong frame of mind uh especially in some of those screenings which can be really grueling sometimes you're watching like four movies in a row on like a tuesday morning um i i i get it um but I, i think this you know sort of proves the the theme of kubrick is that very rarely do negative views of his movies tend to last um for a long time and people tend to come around
1: Well, I think there's also, and this is now sort of deviating a little bit from Kubrick from this movie, but it feels like with so many auteurs and people that are like, I was talking about this recently with both the new Kendrick Lamar album and also with the new Robert Eggers movie where it's like, I think people are afraid now of being the one person who speaks out against like, Oh, I don't, this album's not good. This movie's not good. When Mm -hmm. everybody's just like, Oh my (laughs) God, you need to see this. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and just, you know, go see everything and make your own decisions.
0: And there are people who, who thrive on being the dissenting voice as well. Right. Um, but again, when you're when you're when you're a film critic and you're seeing a, a movie and you really don't know how other people have reacted to it, you can't. It's hard to do that on purpose, right? Unless you do it like later on, and then you're like, I'm the one who thinks it's bad, and I'm gonna, you know, build my career on um, being wrong about that. But uh, the question really then is, as you alluded to earlier, that this may be uh, the 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 Kubrick masterpiece. Uh, it may very well be his greatest film, and that is often a debate much of the debate these days is not whether or not eyes wide shut is great or good but whether or not it is the greatest or goodest of kubrick's canon and so that is one of many things that we will be asking today's guests so joey who is our guest today
1: our guest today is new york magazine feature writer and author of the july 2019 vulture article what i learned after watching eyes wide shut 100 times lila (laughs) shapira 100
0: times is a lot of times to watch Ice
1: Age. I think it's more than I've watched any movie,
0: but I don't it's, know. It's Probably about 96 more times than I've seen it. But uh, we will see what Lila has to say. We will be right back with Lila Shapiro. <laughs> Welcome to the show thanks for joining us and i'm very excited to talk to you specifically about this particular movie because i think you may if they kept records of this sort of thing you may hold the world's record for the person who has seen eyes wide shut the most which you claim is a hundred times now is that a is that a scientifically tabulated number, or is that a guess based on sort of circumstantial evidence around your viewing habits of that movie?
2: It's very much uh, a, a broad estimate, I would say. Mm-hmm. It ex- it felt like a hundred times. Um, it could have been more, to be honest. Um, well, wow. It, it could have potentially been less. I mean, I will say that uh, there was a certain point in my viewing and reviewing in which i was also like doing other things so Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know it's not like
0: (laughs) so if there's like a guinness book of world's records person watching you (laughs) you would not get credit for like two or three of them is is what i'm
2: yeah I, uh, yeah, i think that would that would be that would be fair to say
0: so like sitting down and watching it attentively What's the number? Do you think of the time, number of times <laughs> that you that you've watched it with like interest and and investment? With definitely like dozens
2: of like mm-hmm. of of times in which you know I was actually just watching it. Um, and not (laughs) also writing or cleaning my apartment or talking on the phone or (laughs) doing all the other things. I mean, I was like working on this, a book actually during the time of like the the peak rewatching and I had just gotten married. My husband was away for a month on like a reporting trip and I was like, that was a month of just pretty much nonstop eyes wide shut consumption and, and <laughs> at the beginning of that time like I was definitely watching it attentively as that month pushed on I was just it was on I wasn't necessarily with it every moment and there are, I feel like there are generally scenes in it that I would tend to space out and more and t- mm-hmm. scenes that like I could watch infinite numbers of times because they're so perfect and compelling
0: I think a lot of people listening would be like, "You just got married and your husband's out of town. This is the worst possible movie
1: for you to watch on repeat <laughs> in those circumstances." You know, I would argue it depends on your. It depends on your point of view. I think, I think it depends on your point of view. I think the that Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise's characters are going through the same exact thing in this, and just right one trusts the other a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, right, and it's like it depends how you feel about having gotten married about being married about what it means to be married (laughs) are you is one in shock about this decision maybe (laughs) that was part of it um but it was definitely like uh settling in to that to those to those feelings of uneasiness that i think right i was kind of leaning into that
0: so do you think it was kind of more therapeutic to you or or Like, I I don't know, what do you think was your sort of, what was the nature of the addiction? (laughs) Because, I mean, you do write about it a little bit um, in 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 your piece about this, but what was sort of like, obviously you probably watched it once and then again and again and again, and what was kind of feeding that? Was it kind of comforting or was it just sort of a way of kind of investing in these uneasy feelings that you might've had?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's a comforting movie. Um, no, <laughs> so it's not. It, yeah, I w- wasn't looking for comfort, but it was very. I mean, it is very like entrancing. Yeah, um, and you know, because I was I was working on this novel at the time, it 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 did feel like this almost like shortcut to getting into this like dreamlike space that I wanted to be in while I was writing so i think that that was was part of it i mean and the book was also sort of exploring some of the themes um you know that that are are in eyes wide chat as well so i think that there was a lot of it was like sort of about like getting into this like trance like state um the music is also like so beautiful and the light is so beautiful in it. So it's like, there's also just this very like, you know, moody quality um, to all of it. So, but, and then I think further it was about like leaning into this feeling of uneasiness, wanting to like explore that and sit with it as well as this sense that like, actually I do think that there are this is a movie that rewards rewatching, you know, like mm-hmm. it can seem very like, um, you know, opaque or like, you know, I mean, I talk about this in the piece, like how I feel like it was, you know, misviewed when critics were first you know encountering it and writing about it so for sure it's like there are these like layers that are unpeeled that are it's so that's satisfying too so it's not just like wanting to space out but also feeling like as you're watching it more it's sort of revealing more of itself
0: so one of the things that we um do when we have guests on on this show is ask them about their initial experience with the movie um because we are Covering the movies of 1999, um, I'm going to start with you. I'm also going to ask Joey the same question. But did what? When was the first time that you saw this? Did you see it when it came out in theaters? I saw it.
2: Yeah, I did see it in theaters, and I guess it was like I was in high school, um, mm-hmm. and I think I must have snuck
0: in because
2: <laughs> I was not 18 yet. <laughs>
0: Right. And they were very, I remember them being very particular about not letting, because like you could get into a lot of R rated movies if you weren't 18, but like this was one of the ones they treated like an nc-17 movie for a lot of uh, theaters i remember that fact about it and understandable uh to some degree
2: yes i definitely like i i think i feel that i saw it as part of like i de- like i came i was with a friend uh, there was like a plan to sneak in and i think we saw something else first and then saw the second we were already like oh, smart. inside
0: yeah, yeah um, the old trick yeah, yeah. and that's <laughs> not a lot of movies that way <laughs>
2: and i think like you know at this point, period of my life like i was very into the shining i had seen the shining probably like dozens of times i mean i i also like just to say generally about myself like i am a re-watcher reviewer re 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 reader you know i like to really like be with a piece of work that i'm interested in so i had seen the shining i think like dozens of times and i loved the shining I don't think that I was immediately at this phase in my life, like so captured by Eyes Wide Shut. Like I remember liking it, but I also remember feeling like not immediately moved by Mm -hmm. it. Um, And like, it wasn't and not really finding it all that like memorable as a like 17 year old, 16 year old you know girl yeah but it was <laughs> but I, I did so then like the, the next rewatch after that was like as um it was during this during this phase of my life when i was like you know i'm curious about eyes wide shut i want to go back to eyes wide shut i think i might have seen it one other time in college that was also not that memorable but it was really like as an adult after i'd gotten married and wanting to revisited because I was curious and then being like, wow, I <laughs> I'm about to become obsessed. And that was like mm-hmm. the the reconnection was really what it was about for me.
0: Uh Joey, I assume again, you were eleven years old when this movie came out. Um I'm guessing this was one of the many movies of that year that you did not see in theaters. What was your first experience with Eyes Wide
1: Well, as I will say, literally every episode we do, I did not see this in theaters that year. <laughs> I'm sure I saw movies in theaters in 1999. I don't know what they were. It was nothing yeah. we're going to cover on the show if I saw anything in theaters. But this is, I'm looking before my letterboxed phase of life. I used to just keep track of movies in Excel. And I started doing that when I went off to college. And so I was like, I'm watching all of the world's best movies because I've basically seen nothing. And so I'm looking through my list. And basically in the like two weeks before I saw this for the first time, probably like my sophomore year of college maybe, I also saw for the first time the original Dawn of the Dead, Die Hard, Full Metal Jacket, Blue Velvet, Inland Empire, Head. The Shining. So, like, I guess I was on, like, a Kubrick and Lynch kick at that point, yeah. which feels uh-huh. like a very sophomore in college thing to do. Um, <laughs> and I remember really liking it, and I don't remember if i have seen it again, but then I watched it again, obviously, when we did the Tom Cruise podcast, and then I watched it again for this. So I think it's probably the Kubrick movie I've seen the most, except my total number is three, as opposed to, you know, a hundred or something. But hmm you were asking me you know a, a week ago when we were talking about this movie for the first time like what if i like it or if i love it or like because you're saying like it's it's a movie that you i don't remember how you described it i don't want to take words out of your mouth but like i think this might be my favorite kubrick but i also don't know and i don't know i think i from what i understand there's like a kind of like a mixed reception that's like aged it's gotten better over time but like yeah i yeah. i I think part of it, I've only, I mean, I've only seen most of those other ones once or twice, so I don't know if it's fair to call this my favorite, but, like, I love this movie. I think it's captivating. And, again, I've only seen it a couple times, but, you know, it sticks with me. Yeah. What about you?
0: Yeah. Well, I I, I saw it in theaters. Uh, I saw it the night it opened. I think I I mentioned that um, in one of our episodes in the past. But, um, yes, I was... uh, sophomore in college, I guess, when it came out. And, um, you know, I'd I'd sort of been through the Kubrick um, crash course that you get when you're in college and like hanging out with a bunch of film majors, right? Um, So I I had my first experience with uh, Clockwork Orange already. Um, I'd watched 2001 when I was probably uh, 12 or 13 years old. Um, So I was definitely a Kubrick fan. I also, I remember reading, there was two movies that I remember reading about the sort of development hell about while I was still in high school in 97, um, Titanic and this, this movie, they started filming it in 96. (laughs) So, you know, uh, it had a long uh, road to, to the final version, which is of course not uncommon for Kubrick, but I remember seeing it. I remember being very, um, you know, moved by the fact that it was Kubrick's last work, um i went to go see it with my friend mike wen in seattle and um we just didn't talk to each other for the next like hour <laughs> after the movie it's one of those things where i was just like i don't know how to process this cuz i'm not really sure that i get exactly what it's trying to tell me um which took a new a couple more viewings but certainly i was of the group of people who thought of it as a great film Immediately and understood that it was great, and and disagreed with the critics who were like meh um, about it. And yeah, I think what I would say is that it's not a movie that I, I don't know. It's hard to say that you love or like like a movie that you struggle to watch because it's so intense and so, um, for lack of a better term, eye opening and sort of forces you to confront certain things. Um, But I certainly think of it. Then and now as a masterpiece. And I think it's one of Kubrick's best films. And you can't say that when it comes out because people are like, you know, it has to age. You have to, it has to be 20 or 30 years. Well, now it's been 20 or 30 years, um, 20, 23 years. And I, and I, and I think it, it ranks as one of his greatest works. Lila, I, I, I get the impression, I mean, you sort of allude to the fact that you you are a um, Kubrick fan of sorts. Uh, where where do you think this ranks within the, the, the Kubrick pantheon?
2: I think it's definitely my favorite. Um, and, you know, I think it compared to something like, you know, The Shining, which, you know, I did love and, you know, is like a great movie. But I can't, I don't enjoy rewatching The Shining in part because like, I think there's something about like in comparison, like Eyes Wide Shut is so subtle and there's something so subtle about the acting and the choices in the storytelling and the filmmaking. And I feel like that's the thing that's like, I mean, yes, it's very, very intense, but there's something that's very like withholding about it in a way that I really am Mm -hmm. drawn to. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I think about something like the shining, like it's just so like the acting is so over the top in some ways that it's like, it's just not, it's like, I don't feel like compelled to rewatch it. I don't want to rewatch it and spend like more time with like (laughs) Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall in, in, the, like, <laughs> you know what I mean, like, yeah, but it's, intense. it's very intense, and like, it's almost like, also, like, I don't know, it just feels like, you know, eyes wide shut, just like the fact that it's like it's so withholding and so secretive. There's something about that I think that is like incredibly compelling and more compelling than all of his other work. Even though I do like, I love, I think he's a great director, but yeah, I mean. It's definitely for me the best one and the and his and his masterpiece.
1: I, I almost wish that I had spent the last like ten days like rewatching all the stuff. Like I want to, but I do think that there's something here that's both I think what Lalo was saying about it being like open and also secretive, like there's no secrets here, and there's also full of secrets here. And I just This movie is just intriguing to me in ways that feel Like I think that there's something about the way that he makes movies, and the way that like Fincher makes movies, are they're both so precise and so specific and so preplanned and so this is the way that I want it, and we're gonna be here until you deliver it that way. And I think that there's something that like he, I know that there's like pros and cons to that, I'm sure, but I think he cracked something in this where it's. I mean, have have we really talked about like the fact that this? I don't, I don't know that this ended their marriage, but like. Probably didn't help their marriage, right? Like, you know, there's 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 a much lower stakes version of this with Deepwater now streaming on Hulu, <laughs> which I recommend because it's wonderful and horny. But you know, that was Anna Armas and Ben Affleck together, and like that probably didn't help their marriage or their their relationship, right? But to be only with your spouse basically for like 400 days in a different country with a director who is known for being demanding perfection and breaking you until you offer that. Uh, that's fascinating in and of itself. Like, even if the movie was terrible, just the fact that the making was, but then the movie's great. So, like, there's layers on layers here. And I think it's the combination of secrets and openness and it's just, it's
2: wild. Yeah, I mean, like, he, like, almost, like, the sort of sadomasochistic energy between him and Tom Cruise is just, like, totally fascinating like he tortured him (laughs) in some ways you know it's like when you read about him like making him walk through a door a hundred times you know for a hundred weeks or like you know the whole sequence how like he wouldn't let him come to set when Nicole Kidman was you know shooting her sex scenes with the sailor um because he wanted you know to stir to stir up that pot is like is so compelling and so weird and it's like yeah watching watching it just as like i mean they were just like the most famous couple in the world and then he yes it seemingly tears their marriage apart (laughs) it's like a, a fascinating document
0: yeah well that and the the movie itself is about those themes and so i mean understandably you can say what you want about the marriage being kind of a sham anyway, that like Scientology put together, but that's a different subject. Um Certainly whatever was authentic about that marriage, you could understand that pretty much anybody's marriage would have a hard time surviving um, that, 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 uh, that process. I, I wonder what you think is people would ask me sometimes, like, what do I think it's about? <laughs> and that's a kind of, it's kind of a tough question to answer. I think, um, To me, it is about the nature of of trust and the ability to trust people largely through the kind of barriers of both um, sexuality and also power structures. And, um, you know, I like in your essay about it the way that you allude to the fact that a lot of especially kind of male critics of the time derided the movie for being unbelievable that tom cruise's character would be this naive and yet the the reality like when you really think about it and when you apply real life examples to it is that the naivety on display there is very much a if not a a direct sort of portrayal of a reality a, a workable metaphor for the naivety that we see all around us in our culture all the time right Mm -hmm. um so do you have like would you have a way that you would say here's what the movie is about here's its thesis and has has the has your understanding of that or your interpretation of it changed over the course of the years and the time that you've um spent with this movie
2: Mm. um i mean i i see it as being about relationships between men and women within a specific milieu like mm-hmm. and within that framework being about fundamentally about like power the exercise of power um and like and the way that like power class sex like are kind of you know interwoven with each other um and in terms of like the themes that I see as like being most most prominent but you know I was thinking a little bit about what you're saying about like, you know, Tom and Nicole having like, you know, a this hype, you know, who knows what their marriage really was, right? Maybe it was put together by Scientology, you know, but it's like, there's something about the way that this marriage is in the movie where you're like, they don't really seem to have any like connection, particularly, or even to see each other per se, like, you know, the whole like i mean singing at the opening which she's like how do i look she looks like unbelievably beautiful right he's like <laughs> doesn't look at her <laughs> and like there's this way that like you know and then they go and you know and they're getting ready and they're going to this like party and the party is like you know hosted by the man who we're gonna later learn is like you know either the host of the orgy or like a, you know a critically important person at the orgy or just anyone at you know he's he's there he knows what's going on he's like the man in power the man with money the man who can you know who is using everyone and they are sort of going to make nice with him and like just the whole operation is like there's something about like like what that's what we see of that's what we see their marriages like it's like they're going to be on display here like there's you don't really get the sense that they're two people who are interested in knowing each other or like that that's the point of their marriage and like you know in fact like once you know they actually have a conversation in which like nicole's you know, character starts to like express her feelings then it's like unbearable to you know to Tom, and he runs out into the night. Um, you know, and it's like, so I don't know. To me, it's like it's yeah, like it is about like trust and the nature of trust. But I feel like it's more about like, you know, it's like when you see what he's, it's like he's, he's, he's fleeing from intimacy in pursuit of secrets power money and status you know Mm. and like when he finds horrible things there like his reaction to that essentially is that he wants to be in the know he wants to be included and so it's like to me it's really about about that more than it is about like sex or like you know actual relation like an actual like intimacy or you right. know anything along those lines. And then in terms I mean in terms of your other question like has it changed over the viewings like I think that um I think that I was like very like just I mean part of what I think I was saw, like, over time, is this, like, exp- how that it was an exploration of, like, of Tom Cruise's naivete, slash his character, Dr. Hartford, you know, both of them together, their yeah, naivete, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and like, sort of the, you know, and a critique of it, ultimately, Um, you know, and, and that that was clearly, like, something that people, like, you know, yeah, many male critics didn't see at the time when it first came out, but it's, like, you know, and I was watching it, um, you know, in, in the aftermath of, of Me Too, and it's, it you know, it was very, in light of that moment, it just felt like, you know, so prescient and so, like, smart about this, like, aspect of our culture, which is, like, a desire to, like, not just, like, to run away from intimacy, but to, like, run away from knowledge, to run away from knowing each other, and instead pursue, like, power, secrets, complicity in a system of, you know, um, you know, uh, complicity in, in the system that abuses the powerless and concentrates, you know, wealth and luxury and, you know, people who are people who serve as objects like to this, you know, elite.
0: Yeah and there does seem to be like there's a there's an element I think of that that appears in a couple of movies of that basic era one of the one of the things that you wrote about um that a lot of people have written about is the the death of the um uh prostitute or whatever it is that she's hired to be at that party and then there's the drug overdose but it's like not clear that it's the same person and I think it's actually two different actresses right and there's this sort of sense of the expendability and also just sort of the like Xerox ability of a certain class of people that is also present, I think within like American psycho, which I think deals with a lot of the same idea that there's like a place, a certain rank within society where identity no longer matters. And it's all just about status and power. Um, and that sort of thing. Um, Joey quickly to you as someone who saw this movie much later, um, and and obviously found meaning in it. As someone who who did not see it in the context of the time, do did those themes, those ideas, still seem as relevant to you at the time of seeing it the first time as they would have maybe you know at the end of the twentieth century?
1: I don't know. I don't know if I have the context to answer that question. I think I think what what's most interesting to me, and this is you know what what Lila, it was something that that popped in my head as Lila was talking, is I think we don't really have a sense of the dynamic of their marriage. Like, we know that they've been together ostensibly for, I don't know, they have like an eight ish year old daughter. Right. So we figure probably they've been they, like, do they ever explicitly say how long they've been together? Like maybe like 10 years ish. I don't think they ever explicitly say, but that's what I've always assumed. Ballpark. Yeah. And like the movie ends in a place where they're going to at least try to stick around. Right. And try to, you know, return to normalcy. I think what's interesting to me is you know, societal impacts and societal, you know, meets you of modern day or the, the themes picked up in the late 90s or anything in between or anything that's going to be read into it in the future. I think if you just look at this like as a, not like a midlife crisis, but kind of like a midlife crisis for a marriage, like I don't get the sense that either of them are really unhappy. I mean, I don't think either of them are actually really happy, but I don't know that they're unhappy. I think they're just sort of getting through it. And they hit, like, a speed bump, and then this might have, like, scared him straight. And I think – I don't know, the, again, that I have the, the context or the, the the placement to, like, think about how it was perceived in 99, which is maybe the point of this podcast. But, like, <laughs> I think the story itself that it's telling of this, like, relationship, this dynamic between two adults in a relationship with responsibilities and whatever, I think that's in, that's what's most interesting to me because Nicole Kidman is bringing up her character is bringing up this like thing that she like just thought a while back or dreamt about a while back. And that causes him to like fall down this rabbit hole that maybe he would have eventually anyway. But you know, I think it's just, I think that's what's interesting to me. And I think that is something that whether you're watching it in 1997 or not, not 97, Jesus, the podcast, 1997, the podcast, <laughs> 1999 <laughs> or 2022 or anywhere in between. I think like it's a very simple story and, allegory kind of
2: yeah i mean well it's funny like you say like you know or we talked about like her nicole's confession being the impetus but it's like as we see in the opening like he's already on the verge of cheating on her like they both are on like when they go to the party and like she dances with the hungarian and he like hangs out with the two models and they like invite him you know to like well find out where the rainbow ends you know and, like, he wants to, but then he's, like, pulled away because he has to, like, deal with, you know, the the crisis um, with Ziggler and the, like, Mandy, and uh, unconscious Mandy. So it's, like, he already wanted to do that, was stopped from doing that, maybe felt ambivalent. And then it's, like, now there's another opportunity that he's going to try to, you know try to go for it now that he's been you know now that he feels betrayed and has some like, kind of excuse to continue on
1: you know like i what i wonder and i don't remember lila if this was in your piece or just what i was reading to like the reception of the time but like i remember reading somewhere that people looked at this as like a prudish movie that like kubrick was just like this old man who didn't get it and like didn't understand where society was sexually and whatever i think this I've, this was in your piece i believe right yeah yeah and i wonder if you know 2010 20- three years later where like polyamory is maybe not like super widespread, but much more accepted than it was. Like, I wonder if, if, if the same movie was made or released now, like if, if that was something, cause like, it seems like they're dabbling to an extent on like having an open relationship, even though they don't actually have that conversation. Right. And like, I don't think he would want it. I don't even know if she would want it, but I think, and I think the jealousy of, I think they both might want to explore it for their own thing, but I don't think they want the other. And like, you need that kind of like, two-way street of it all. But I think that, like, that's also timely sort of in a way where, like, especially, like how many thought pieces I've seen, like, in Apple News over the last two years of people, like, hey, like, this is how the pand- pandemic changed relationships. And, like, everybody's doing everything. It's just like, <laughs> okay. Um, but I wonder, like, because it seems like they're both – it seems like they have an understanding And they might, but I don't know to what extent – Like, I don't think their understanding is like go sleep with whoever you want, but it's like, hey, we're going to a party. Like if you want to be flirty, like be flirty, but like we're together. And then just like her admitting that she thought about going further is like, oh my god, I can't believe that my wife would mentally cheat on me. You know, I don't know.
2: (laughs) I feel like though what you were saying earlier is like – I mean there is this like – that it's like the timelessness of it. You know, it's like these are thoughts that like – couples like you know that have been present like for i don't know at least the past hundred years or if not forever like there's this way that like those like yeah those like crisis this like crisis or like small crisis or like imaginary crisis or whatever in the marriage is something that is like you know it's happening now, but it's also always been happening as long as there's been like contempt marriage as it exists in the modern world. You
1: said I think you, you mentioned that this is like I don't know if we mentioned it in this podcast, but you mentioned in your piece that this is a this is based on like a short story or a story of some kind from a different country from like a way different era, right? So like the fact that the the actual theme is timeless, I think goes to prove that
2: point. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love this conversation that like Kubrick and his screenwriter had when they first started talking about like um, you know, whether or not like they, you know, they could adapt um, you know, this this story for the the modern era it was originally sent in like you know um, turn of the century Vienna, and. You know, the screenwriter, um, Frederick Raphael, he says, like, um, you know, he says to Kubrick, like, but hasn't, like, haven't many things changed since 1900. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, not least the relations between men and women. And Kubrick is just like, I don't think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I and love that like, conversation too. You know, yeah,
2: he thinks about it, and he's like, "Neither do I." And it's like, "Okay, well, there you go."
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think the movie kind of bears that thesis out, at least, or at least that that's sort of um, that assumption or that con- uh, conclusion is one of sort of the driving parts of the narrative um, behind the story, right? That like things things really haven't changed. There is this kind of fundamental um, challenge that relationships have by nature of being relationships that that just don't don't change.
2: Yeah, and like in terms of how people read it at the time, I do think it's so um it's so tied in with like yeah, what what the 90s, you know, was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the height of the erotic thriller, which this movie was like sort of positioned as, you know. And it's like of course, like this is not an erotic thriller really like in its interests. Like if you compare it to something like, you know, Basic Instinct. Um it's you know it's got such different interests um but you know people people are reading it with that sort of like 90s like kind of you know pseudo self-aware like kind of hard-edged like you know this is so tame when like you compare it to like you know Sharon Stone's interrogation Mm -hmm. scene or whatever Mm -hmm. um but it actually you know maybe it does like I think American Psycho is actually a really interesting um comparison because I you know I did I interviewed Mary Heron a while ago and one of the things I talked about with her was like about how um uncomfortable um the sex in American Psycho you know made viewers and you know and it, and it it's really you know it's it's because like it's like okay these women are prostitutes and it's and they're obviously bored and not you know, doing this terrible job and it's really <laughs> conveyed and it's not sexy. <laughs> right.
0: No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: And it's like, people are upset by that. They're like, they, they think that that's bad. They, they, they don't want to see that, but there's something similar, I think to that in like to the orgy thing where it's like, it's obvious that the, you know the women that are there are obviously hired to do a job like there's no moment really that you think otherwise like right and it is boring and it is like i think (laughs) like the orgy is like probably like the most like the it's like the least sexy orgy imaginable absolutely
0: it's super uncomfortable it is like it's difficult to watch it because for that reason yeah totally agree
2: and like yeah. and i think that has to do with these like reactions that people had saying it's like not sexy or like he's naive he doesn't get it he's an old man who just like hasn't left the house and doesn't understand mm-hmm. like twisty contemporary sexuality you're like no he does understand something about it it's just not something that is palatable or comfortable you know to sit with
0: yeah, and it's funny because, I mean, you you refer to Eyes Wide Shut as a fairy tale, and I think that's a great way of encapsulating what it is and why it sort of maybe is hard for people to get, because they are expecting kind of like Adrian Lyne and they get Stanley Kubrick in this like weird, bizarre fairy tale once removed from reality sort of setting. And I also think of American Psycho as a similar kind of a fairy tale, right? Like certainly not what I would tell my kids before they go to bed. But um, (laughs) in terms of the way that it's grounded, I I, I think it's um, a similar sort of thing. In addition to that, it's got sort of these elements of fairy tales where these sort of strange characters kind of pop up momentarily and like serve a purpose and then go away and move on. And I I also, a lot's been written about the fact that a lot of those characters and a lot of those kind of random moments are references to other Kubrick movies and that Eyes Wide Shut has a lot of Kubrick references in it. Um, You know, the, the, the Lolita character and there's, they have like full metal jacket on their DVD rack. There's all kinds of things that he throws into his own movies. I wonder if you have any thoughts about sort of how Kubrick saw this in terms or how you think he saw this in terms of like the pantheon of his own work. And, and if this is sort of an encapsulation of everything, either to you as sort of a fan of his or, or to him, Joey, I'll, I'll leave that open to you as well. Yeah. Um, what, why is he referencing himself so much in this movie, and 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 what do you think we can kind of take from that?
2: I mean, yeah, like it is, you know, he was working on it for, like, didn't he first start working on it like decades earlier? Yeah. Um, and I do think in some way, like it was. I mean, I mean it's it's a little hard to know because obviously then he died so (laughs) it's it's not not helpful (laughs) yeah (laughs) but but it's like it's hard to get away from this i mean i i certainly view it as like a culminating work um and and feel like these references like that that are sprinkled throughout like lend you know lend weight to that
1: feeling i'm just generally not a fan of when like creators are self referential Like I just watched a film that's about, I would say, on par with Eyes Wide Shut. I watched Ambulance this week. <laughs> and which I actually did love. I don't want to I don't talk shit about Ambulance. I'm just I want I also want to directly compare Michael Bay to Kubrick. But like <laughs> two lines of dialogue. They reference The Rock and Bad Boys. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? And like Chuck Palahniuk has written himself into Fight Club too, like the creator of Fight Club, like in the in the novel, in the graphic novel Fight Club too, which is a real thing. He he's a character as the creator of Fight Club, and I think what Kubrick's doing it is much more subtle than that. But I just don't understand. Like, there's the weird other way of doing things where you think about like if they watch a movie in the universe in any movie, if anybody in any movie is watching a movie, then like there's a whole like, well that actor was in that and that actor was in the thing, and they're like, who knows? Like that's a weird rabbit hole to go down. But I just. I know it's maybe impossible. I don't know what it means. I'm not crazy about it. I don't know. But it's also, it's subtle enough or in the background enough or whatever that it doesn't, it's not what I'm remembering about this movie. Maybe it's just there's so much other stuff here But I also think that that could be the kind of thing where it's like that Room 237 documentary about The Shining. It's like, I don't know why there's not one of those about all of his movies or every movie. And, like, I'm sure that one segment would be like, why is there a Full Metal Jacket VHS? What do we think that means? And it's like, well, actually, it's because this takes place during Vietnam. It's like, no, it doesn't. What are you talking about? So I don't know.
2: Yeah, he definitely,
1: like, just Just, had a thing for
2: doing that and for, like, you know – Seeding all of his movies with like infinite references and why did he do
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I don't know. Like is it again that that kind of might be to a certain extent the Tom Cruise element, the character element in here, or just like a successful but you know just white guy with all the power is just like how how what can I do next? How can I get weird with this? It's like well, don't do that. I. I mean, the way I've always kind of read it is that
0: it is in some way, and again, I think Lila makes a good point that it's hard to have a final say on this because we didn't get to have the interviews with him after the movie came out to ask him these questions, which is one of the kind of weird, like mysterious, um, enduring legacies of Eyes Wide Shut that we do have to purely interpret it kind of on our own without Kubrick's guidance. But I always sort of looked at it... Um, as him exactly kind of saying that that like there is a there's an underlying thesis to all of these movies that he's made that you might have missed and you know this being sort of his last statement um his last kind of cinematic statement um including these very clear kind of references to not all of his movies but like certainly big references to a lot of the bigger ones um and, and i it's interesting that the ones that really kind of st- stood out to me are both Eyes Wide Shut and Clockwork Orange, which I think are the ones that are most commonly misunderstood in terms of what Kubrick wanted to get out of them. Um, not what, you know, Burgess or or Nabokov wanted to get out of them, but like what he wants to get out of them and what he wants you to see. And it's just sort of this last, I don't know, maybe this last kind of Hail, Hail Mary pass to to viewers to
1: say... Um, go back and rethink it in this context, right? Well, it's also the same thing with The Shining, too, right? Like, there's the right, noting yeah. like Stephen King's, like, you ruined my my book, and then he makes his version. Like, people are like, well, you, it's a that's a bad movie, like, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, and also like, but what he has said about it is like also mysterious and contradictory. Yeah, you know, like because he's both called it like I think he called it like his greatest contribution to the art of cinema or something and like but he also has said really disparaging things about it like right before his death there are reports that he like you know i don't know called it a piece of shit it was like <laughs> despairing and disgusted so it's like then we're sort of like well which one was it
0: <laughs> yeah and i guess we have to decide as viewers which is really tough yeah we don't like do yeah that.
2: i mean <laughs> we want to
0: have the right opinion yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> at least we want to know what yeah right do we have his opinion I mean right. there's some, like but also like I think I do think that by this I mean there's something so like I don't know it feels like he's such a controlling director it feels like an incredibly controlled piece of work like I guess you like but it is but it is like there I, there are so many different ways to read it that it becomes like you know, it becomes really like ambiguous. I think that that's why it's so satisfying as a object to rewatch over and over again.
0: Last thing I want to ask you before we, before we sort of close up here is um, one of the ways that it's sort of taken on this um, sort of posthumous life over the last 20 some odd years is the way that the vision, like the, the, um, the kind of nature of the, the the parties of the super duper elite um, who are removed from consequence within society uh, has played into a lot of the conspiratorial meme framework uh, that has emerged on the Internet in the last several years. And I'm especially intrigued by the fact that the, the, the mansion used for the party was a Rothschild's mansion. Um, which like doesn't help, right? In terms of fueling some of that, um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on on that sort of second life and whether or not there was an element that was I don't know, almost sort of visionary that Kubrick uh, was already sort of tapped into this sort of conspiracy theory minded culture that most of us didn't really know about until sort of QAnon and and um, and modern internet conspiracy theories
2: that's an interesting question. Like, was he, (laughs) or was he actually invited to parties like this? Well, yeah,
0: maybe. I mean, if you ask a QAnon believer, I'm sure they think he was, but you know, I'm not sure (laughs) that he, I'm not sure that that's true, but um, that's also a great question.
2: I mean, yeah. Like, I think that not long after, like very shortly after my piece came out, like the Epstein stuff. um, Right. Broke. It's wild. It's, it is, it is, it is really wild. I mean, I think that he, I don't, you know, like, I mean, these ideas about, like, the elite having these parties where they, you know, use their underlings are, like, also such, like, I mean, it's not, like, a contemporary idea. I mean, it is, but it's been going on, like, forever, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's something about that, too, that actually feels really timeless. Like, yes, it is in the news right now, but, like, it's also been something, you know. I mean, there is an orgy like that that's described, like, in the original novella. Right. You know? So, sure. it's, you know, I think that there's a way that, like, you know, that he was tapping into something that's, like, true about like human society and like western civilization Um, and you know and we're now going through an era where we're like becoming more aware of that or thinking Mm -hmm. about that more or feeling Mm -hmm. fresh outrage and shock and like persecuting the people who are behind it and stuff but it's not like it's new so yeah I don't know I mean I think he clearly was tapped into that and interested in that and like obviously interested in the way that um i don't know the way that like humans can like destroy themselves and destroy each other and like that's obviously been a <laughs> preoccupation of his
0: yeah throughout his career yeah and i mean i mean rothschild conspiracy theories go back a long way so i have a hard time believing he didn't know what he was sort of getting himself into in deciding to use one of their properties to film that scene yeah for
2: sure i i think yes i mean i think that he like it's definitely like i don't yes i don't think there are like accidental choices that he makes it i think it totally it totally makes sense that he was thinking about that and that he was interested in that and like, and using that as a way of like lending more weird world weight to it in the same way that like, you know, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman lend this like weight
1: to the film. I think there is that historical sort of precedent or whatever that Shakespeare would write his plays to both the, like, people in the front who just wanted to see, like, nudity and violence and jokes and whatever, and then write to the people who, like, want to see, like, the grand narrative of it all, and it feels like – kubrick to a certain extent and i don't think it's crazy to compare the two that he's writing things that if you want to read into it, the conspiracy way if you want to think about where they're actually shooting where they're filming what the location is what that all means you can if you want to just see a movie where nicole kibben disrobes in the first 30 seconds you can see that too or you see like just like a tom cruise like i think that there is something to the fact that he's writing a movie that applies to whatever mindset you want to bring to it And I think that's effective. I think that's cool. I think that shows that it's got like a mastery of his craft that no matter if you're a conspiracy nut, if you're not, if you're this, if you're that, like you can look into this and there's just enough movie here that you can take whatever reading you want out of it. And like, you're not wrong. It might not be right, but you're not wrong.
2: Yeah. And like, I mean, there is the whole like. like there is the whole like conspiracy theory as well about like we never saw like the final film because like he delved too close to the (laughs) Illuminati secret you know
0: I actually didn't even know that that was a conspiracy theory that's interesting (laughs) that is a conspiracy theory that
2: exists because it's like too accurate in in you know in capturing whatever, I mean, and then there's all sorts of like, um, symbols like throughout the film that are like Masonic symbols and like, you know, allusions to that, all of that stuff, as well as like the title, you I mean, the name itself is also an allusion um, to the, um, I'm trying to remember, is it like, maybe it's like a Mason's thing where it's like, my eyes are shut to your misdeeds, my brother. I think Mm -hmm. it's like the Mm -hmm. phrase that it's Mm -hmm. taken from. Yeah. Um, so it's like yeah like he's definitely talking about all that stuff but yes but if you don't if it, you can view it without that and it's still
0: inter- it it is interesting on many levels um so before we go we have two questions that we ask all of our guests
1: so i think the answer to this one is probably obvious but do you have a favorite <laughs> movie from 1999
2: <1999? laughs> I, I'm definitely gonna go with that white well chat now <laughs> the answer
1: to this might also be obvious. I don't know because I know you've probably spent more time with this but do you have a favorite movie of all time?
2: you know someone asked me this the other day and I was like so torn up about it I was like, ask me what like for my you know five favorite slasher movies um I don't have an answer either it's it's you know it, yeah it's a very I mean the the question I was forced uh, the other night to answer this like i couldn't not answer it there was like we couldn't move on with the dinner conversation until i answered it my answer (laughs) that i gave was phantom thread and i don't know like it's a fantastic movie i love phantom thread you know i'm gonna i'm gonna share that with you with just a caveat that like i i I cannot answer the question but like perhaps that might be an answer in some moments of my day
1: so A similar question that kind of combines the two, because the answer might be eyes wide shut. Is there a movie that you can re? Again, I think this is an obvious (laughs) maybe. A movie that you can rewatch more than any other movie. Because I think like I don't know that everybody wants some is my favorite movie. But if I could only watch one movie, I could rewatch that movie infinitely. That might be. That might mean it's my favorite movie. I don't know. But like it's the movie that I can that I find comfort in, and that just has enough different stuff that I'm like this. I could watch this forever and be fine. I wouldn't want to, but like I could. Is that Eyes Wide Shut is that a different movie?
2: Um, <laughs> I mean, I I think that just like, you know, I think that is the movie that I have watched the most times. Like, for, I would hope so, you know, based on numbers. numbers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> As it as it happens,
0: (laughs) but is it your comfort movie? Would you just pop it in to be like, well, it's a rainy afternoon. Let's watch Eyes Wide Shut. I
2: probably not. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like a comfort movie. I don't. You know, I more have comfort TV shows. Um, Oh,
1: okay, that's fair.
2: I mean, for a long time, like my comfort, like. I'm actually in, in search of a new comfort TV show. Um I mean for many years my comfort TV show was um Buffy, but um then I wrote this big profile about Joss Whedon and I've uh, heard of that. That's uh,
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm done with Buffy for now, I'd say.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no longer a comfort show.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oof. Yeah. I didn't write the piece and I read it and I, I'm a huge Buffy fan as well. And I'm, I'm yeesh. Yeah, um, yeah. Made me think twice about having that as a comfort show. It's so. not something
2: that you want to just fall asleep to.
0: <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. Um, yeah. Certainly. I've fallen asleep to it many times in the past. But... Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wish you well on your pursuit of a new comfort show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't know what I'd recommend to a Buffy fan who can't watch Buffy anymore. I mean, the first thing I'd say is Angel, but that's not going to help. <laughs>
1: uh, no. Well, no. I, I will say, if you're looking for something to fall asleep to, there was this group of Hollywood film editors that dubbed themselves Racer Trash based on a line in, a, in Speed Racer. And they've disbanded since, but they've put all of their stuff that they used to just stream on Twitch to be there live to watch it. But they've since put everything up on the internet archive and a lot of this on their Vimeo too. But they took Eyes Wide Shut and they did their remixing of it where they like put things out of order and they cut in movie other movies <laughs> and they like put a visual effects on and different songs in there. And just this whole, like they remake it in their own image and it's amazing. It's wonderful. I watched the movie and I watched this, but after the movie which they condense down to about like an hour 20 ish they got a whole like way that they do it they have a bunch of different people doing it they have like a 15 or 20 minute, what they call like a sleep wave, which is like something you're kind of supposed to fall asleep to. But that for this movie is phenomenal. So it's called vibes wide shut. Um, so if you want to find it, look on vimeo.com slash racer trash or just the internet archive. You can search for them on there, but they did a couple movies from 1999. Cause I think it's just a bunch of people who are like our age, roughly who grew up in the nineties and like internalized all these movies and are just having their way with it. So, If you're looking for something to fall asleep to, I don't know that this will be the thing, but like, it's kind of the goal. So I would highly recommend Vibes Wide Shut.
2: Wow. Okay. I definitely want to check that out. That sounds fantastic. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Lila, is there a way to, uh, or I should ask you this way, um, if people want to find more of your work and or connect with you, uh, where do they go? Um,
2: Okay. They can... They can look at my Twitter, although I did recently delete my Twitter. Before I published the Joss piece, I deleted my Twitter history. <laughs> Smart. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but they could find me there. They can also find me at Lila Shapiro at you know NewYorkMagazine um, dot com. Um, I'm I'm there, and that's where most of my my work is as well.
0: And what's the status of the novel um, upon which Eyes Wide Shut is an influence?
2: You know, I am still I'm working on revisions right now I had taken a year off um, In between Like staff writing jobs And I like wrote it And I rewrote it And then I got the staff job And I kind of had to take a break But now I've actually recently picked it back up So um, Yeah, there is a Orgy party scene At the center <laughs>
1: And it's at Tom Cruise's house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The main character is Tom Cruise. Um, No, I was going to say, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it and looking to some of the uh, subtle allusions to Eyes Wide Shut, but um, (laughs) apparently I'm not going to have to look very far. We will keep an eye out for that and certainly mention it when and if we're still doing the show when that comes out. Um, Lila, it's been really fun talking to you. Yeah, thank Um, you
2: so much for having
0: me. This was delightful. Thank you so much, Joey. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time.
1: And it's Temple of Doom, the Goonies, everything, everywhere, all at once, and Sino Man. It's like, what? And that's it, basically. Everything else is like a documentary, a thing about a thing. Wow. All right.